For our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, The Rock. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here today, as it always is, on another one of God's, as Reggie says in our meeting room every week, respites, Sabbath day. Uh, and as Reggie just said, uh, the title of this message today is The Rock. And I've already had, I was typing this out last night, emailing Sherry what my title was. Uh, and I was thinking, man, people are going to be asking me if this is about The Rock Dwayne Johnson. And it's, it's not about The Rock that a lot of us have heard or seen before, a WWE wrestler, uh, a movie actor. As much as I enjoy uh, the personality of The Rock and uh, from time to time have maybe said the phrase, are you smelling what the rock's cooking, as he says. Uh, it's not about uh, that caricature today. But I do want to start off today getting into the subject at hand, asking you a question or a few questions. And the first one is, what or who has your faith? Who or what do you trust in for your security, for your fulfillment, or for your happiness? You know, we as human beings, we do have a natural instinct to seek satisfaction for several, for, uh, in several elements of our life uh, that often prove to be very anxious parts of our life. Let's just think about that in, in terms of security. Many people put their faith in many areas for their security. We can talk about the government. Many people just to use kind of a recent and current relevancy of the presidential elections going on and all the different uh, talking heads that we've heard, everybody's different opinions, different whether you're in the blogosphere or you're in the social media sphere, uh, you see a lot of people uh, have put their trust, have put their faith in the government of the United States. How about money and job? And this is a very natural, I think, area that people put their trust in. Many people put the trust in their jobs for financial security, and this being natural because how do we support ourselves? How do we support ourselves for our families? How do we bring in a living so we can pay the necessary bills that we have to pay to survive? We do so, by and large, in this world, by having a job. And having a job that gives us a paycheck to give us the means to be able to do those things. But unfortunately, and many of us can attest to this uh, in this room and across America and across the world, they lose their job overnight. Whether this be because of an economy turn, maybe the economy sinks in Oklahoma in particular, and the industry that I have been in, education, has suffered immensely uh, because of the revenue failure, because of the oil failure that has taken place across the world, and especially across the United States of America. Or it could be some other factor that's usually out of our control. The employer that you're employed with goes bankrupt. They have to lay off employees because there's a downturn or they lost a big customer or they lost a big account or something like that. Whatever the job is, whatever the different particulars are, that job, unfortunately, can be taken away just like that. 
How about physical protection? What do we put our faith in for our physical protection? In this world, more and more and more, we see more violence on TV. We see more people engaging in acts that brings harm to others, whether it's someone's rising up to shoot someone with a gun, stab them with a knife, or do some other thing that is intended to put bodily harm on someone. And naturally, we as human beings have become a more anxious people. I mean, all of us in here probably have some sort of security measure in our life. Maybe it's a, a home a security system. Maybe it's a car alarm. Maybe it's mace. A lot of women I see, they carry mace around. And I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that's bad or that's wrong or that's not something that should be done. But it's just the fact that the world that we live in because we know the realities of this world. Or maybe some others even have other instruments of maybe having a gun to, for self-protection. Maybe taking classes in uh, martial arts, self-defense. Different things that we do to try to help us better be prepared to protect ourselves. How about happiness and fulfillment? Where do we put our faith to bring us happiness and fulfillment? We know we can look around the world and there's a lot of different ways that people you know, get fulfillment out of this life. With some people, it's, it's with things. It's with materialism. It's with money. Many people use physical possessions to bring happiness and fulfillment into their lives. Even many of us sometimes do that same thing. The membership to the prestigious country club, the Mercedes, their house, all of these things sometimes people in this world use as a reliance and as a basis to bring them fulfillment in this physical world. Food. This is one of the biggest growing epidemics in our world. We live in a world where food can be considered a drug because people use it to fulfill a need in their lives or as an escape to holes and emptiness in their lives. Other people might use other substances such as drugs, alcohol, things that help them escape this world or the troubles in this world. And unfortunately, many people have become reliant on those different things. And of course, some of these things are good and they're natural. And when used appropriately, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves. And our last one, which is a tough one, because it's so intertwined with our nature, that is the reliance on people. As humans, we have a tendency to use people in our lives to bring our fulfillment. And what makes this difficult is, is that this is partially the way that we have been created. You see, God didn't create human beings to live alone, but God created us with an instinct, with a... Uh, a nature that seeks and desires companionship. And I'm not just saying companionship in a spouse, that's one of the big ones, but also companionship of friends, of community. Me personally, I'm a very, you know, my whole life, my family's been very close. I've been very close to many of you in here at this church. It's been something that has been a huge part of my life is coming here every Sabbath day. And a big part of that is just to be together. This is an extended family to me, and I know many of you feel the same way. There are many people in here that I do not know a time of my life where you were not in it. That's how long, and, and, and it's a blessing, in, in my opinion, to me, that I've been you know, raised in a church, the same church my entire life, 
because it has given me the opportunity to make relationships that I've had my entire life. And so we as human beings sometimes, because we are wired this way, can become reliant on other people for our fulfillment, for our happiness. And it's a difficult one because it's one of the ways in which we were made. But yet the scripture tells us that we can't, even our closest loved ones, we cannot rely on them alone for our happiness. But there has to be something greater that we rely on. You know, Jesus said really interesting things talking about, you know, family relationships. And comparing our love for our family in comparison to our love for God. He says, you know, no one who doesn't hate their father, mother, brother is, you know, worthy of me. And what he meant by that is, is that when we basically compare our love for our family to our love for God, our love of God is supposed to be that much stronger. He's supposed to be number one above all things. And of course, we know that he's a very righteous God, he's a very just God, and he's a very compassionate God. Because we know in the end, when we understand how God is, his nature is, we understand that by loving God and putting him number one, we are going to be best put to be able to love our fellow neighbor and our fellow family members. So those are just a few things, and we're going to get into that. And unfortunately, when we look at all of these things that sometimes people tend to put their faith in, every single one of them has a flaw. And that is, it can be taken away just like that. It's unfortunate, especially that last one that we looked at. We know in this life that there's only one thing that's sure, and that is God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything else, in a blink of an eye, can be taken away, including our own lives. And so because of that... Jesus tells us in Matthew, the seventh chapter, where we're getting ready to go, where our foundation must be. Let's go to Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 24. This is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says these words, and these words are connected to some other words that he said just before that, which we will get into in just a few minutes. But in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house and did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these things or these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. This is Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 24 through 20, 27. So we look at a little background. As I already mentioned, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. And Jesus was speaking to people. Many of the things that he was saying was, is he was actually going against and trying to correct many long-held misconceptions that people had. And in this particular section that Jesus talks about, Right here in chapter 7, he speaks in pairs. He compares and contrasts two ways of life starting in Matthew 7, verse 13. He talks about the two gates. There's one gate that's narrow and there's one that's wide. He talks about the two types of prophets. There's one that's a false prophet and there's one that's a true prophet. And the way that we understand whether or not it's a false or a true prophet, and we're sometimes getting, you know, it can be... 
just a preacher in our day, we can say could be a false prophet, someone who says things that are false and, and says things that don't come true or says things and they don't live accordingly to what they say because we can judge them by their fruits. And he also talks about two foundations, which we just read, the strong foundation and the weak foundation. For my theme for today is real simple, really basic. And as basic as it sounds and as simplistic as it sounds, I think it's a message that is so important to the Christian church at large around the world and in particular the United States of America because of the world in which we are encountering right now at our own, foot, our own uh, door. We live in a country that is divided more than it ever has been, in my opinion. A country that's been more racially divided, more socially divided, more politically divided than I can ever remember. And I understand that I'm only 32 years of age, and that might not mean a lot to some of you. But all I do know is that the reality that we have is the reality that's here today. And in by no means is this a political message. Far from it. It is a message that implores us and everyone to think about the words of Jesus and think about what the gospel is. One of the other alternatives that I thought about titling this message today was the gospel first. The Christian church, the church of God, needs to go back and remember its purpose. And I'm not saying anyone in here is doing anything. I'm just looking at, you know, the grand, you know, the, the overarching theme that I'm seeing from so many different preachers, religious leaders that are, with, you know, claiming to be within Christianity, that's preaching sermons, that's making blogs or vlogs as they call them, with their little short videos. The gospel first, the gospel message of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is our focus. We cannot lose that. So my theme for today is simple. Build on the foundation of Jesus. That might seem very basic and simple to people, but that is such an important message that no matter what people think, in my opinion, many are losing this, even where they don't even realize it. Build on the foundation of Jesus. I got three reasons why. Number one, because his foundation is firm. He is the rock. We must notice here that Jesus doesn't say, build a house on a rock. Not just some rock. Don't just, you know, whenever you build something, make sure it's a sure foundation. He says, no, whoever builds on the rock, the wise man who builds on the rock. Now, we know the Bible is littered with examples all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, many of the Psalms of David, that alludes to this rock. And we know that rock is God. And we know that Jesus in the New Testament talks about that rock. This is the first time that Jesus talks about that rock. And in this same book, the book of Matthew later on, Jesus himself identifies himself as that rock. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, whenever Peter confesses that he is the Lord, that he is the Son of God. That confession right there shows us that Jesus says that I will build my church upon this rock. Not talking about Peter, but talking about himself. We also know that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, let's go there real quick refers to Jesus as the rock. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. We've read this chapter many times before. 
A very important chapter. Verse 1 starts out by saying, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But the most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we can see right here why some decided not to build on that rock, or to tempt that rock. We can look at the ancient Israelites, and I think one of the mistakes that people ever make is reading this and say, Oh my, those foolish Israelites, I can't believe they did all those things. As if they are so much better than you know, they are. As if we, in our own life, don't have the same inclinations, and we don't have to be careful as well to fall in the same traps. We see that some, because of a lack of faith, and we can identify with that in this world. We see many people who lack faith in God. We see some, in this example, wanted the familiar life. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They had been in Egypt their entire life. They had been redeemed from Egypt. And many people, Israelites that is, they wanted to turn back and go where they came from. Because it was familiar to them. And this goes to the whole lack of faith. And you know what? I think a lot of people in this world we look at the parable of the sower and the seed, we know that a lot of people face the same issues. They seek the familiar life. They, seek, you know, they don't want to give up particular things. There's an anxiety. We have attachment issues as humans. We do. We get attached to things. And it's, you know, I am by far a king at it. I don't like change. I don't like, you know, I like the, I've given a message before where I talked about how when I was 16 years old, my mom changed the mattress or bed in my room and I about had a fit. We like the same things. It's difficult. We see this at a young age. There's a comfort. There's a comfort in things and familiarity. We don't like change. Some were just outright rebellious and that's true. Self-reliance. I don't need God. I know what to do. I can rely on myself. So many people have fallen for that. It is a delusion to think that we are self-reliant, that we can take care of things on our own. Some decided instead to build on a counterfeit of the rock. And we see this with the Israelites, with the golden calf. You know, it's interesting, and we've talked about this many times, even in the message I gave a few weeks ago, when they built that golden calf, they didn't look at it like, we don't want God, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever they pronounced him as, whatever they identified him as, as the name that he had revealed to them. We want this God. That's not what they did. But in fact, what they did was they took the golden calf and they placed the Almighty's name on that golden calf as if that is the God that they were worshiping the entire time. You see, in the ancient world, what they would do oftentimes is that they would have a temple or they would have a statue. We know the Old Testament talks all the time 
about how they would build these idols, you know, that were made of wood, that are nothing, that are, you know, they would laugh at them. What are you doing? You're making these things, you know, you're worshiping that? You made it from your own hands. It's nothing. But in the ancient world, those different idols were supposed to be representations of the God in which they were worshiping. Especially when it came to the temples, and we can kind of understand this with the Old Testament temple. The temple was supposed to be the residing place of God, and they would build temples. We see in Greek mythology, Athens, for example. The goddess Athena was the patron god of Athens, and they would build on the Acropolis uh, the Parthenon. Okay, So uh, we see that people like to identify with counterfeit gods, gods that they identify with that's more to their liking more to them familiarity. They want to shape God themselves. I want us to just think about the privilege that me and you have today. We have a great privilege. We see Paul say that essentially we are supposed to be the beneficiaries of the Israelites' experiences. And not only that, we also get to live at a time where the glory of God has come in the flesh. Let's go to John, the first chapter, to a very familiar passage. Many people have done many studies on this passage. It's very deep theological, very popular. John, the first chapter, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then when we skip down to verse 14, we hear these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is so significant, brethren, and here's why. Essentially, the language that we are hearing here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is that the word pitched a tent among us. You see, in the Old Testament, in previous times, the way that God's glory was revealed was kind of from afar off. It was personal, but it wasn't individually personal, if that makes sense. And see, right here, every Jewish person reading this in the first century would understand exactly what was being said, because they had heard the stories. There was this word, this term that was used by many Jews, and many Christians have actually, uh, by doing studies, have also used this word to refer to the Shekinah of God. It's a Hebrew word. It basically means the revealing of God's glory. And they would refer to that cloud by day and fire by night as the Shekinah. And essentially, that's what the Israelites saw. They got to experience the glory of God. But it was kind of from afar off. It wasn't individually personal, except for Moses. We know in Exodus, the 33rd chapter, Moses goes to the tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle. And he actually gets to behold the glory of God very, very shortly. But the other people, the other Israelites, the camp, they sat at their own tent from afar off and worshipped from afar off. Now, what we have right here with John telling us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Brethren, now is the time that God's glory is being 
introduced, being revealed in the most intimate way that a human being can understand the glory of God, and that is through the flesh. Jesus came as a man. God incarnate in a human being now is revealing the glory of God personally and individually to every one of us. Now, does that make mean that we're better than the ancient Israelites. We get to have something that they didn't. We know that Jesus, and when he's speaking in the parables, he's talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of God, even made mention that many prophets and many of the righteous people desired to see and hear the things that you get to see and hear, but they did not. No, it's not because we're better. It's because we live in an era where we are now after more progression of the revelation of God. You see, God has basically writing this story. It's a program. And this program, all of it's important. And what I mean by that is, is that we see that God created human beings, and we see that at different times that God has progressively revealed his plan. We know that God's not just waiting around, what am I going to do now? Well, I'm going to, you know, checkmate. What are they going to do? And depending on what they're going to do is depending on what I'm going to do. We know that God has a grand plan for the human race. Not just for a group of people, but for everybody. And he's used a particular group of people to fulfill this plan and to reach the, plan of the, the, the goal of this plan. But we know that everybody is included in this. And this doesn't mean that everybody's going to reach the kingdom of God. It's not a, a message of universal salvation. But we do know that the scripture tends to kind of lean towards that the overwhelming majority in the end will receive the truth and will accept that truth, thankfully, because we have a compassionate God. God's not in some race or some competition with Satan the devil. That's preposterous, and that's not a part of what the scriptures has to say. The scripture never, ever, ever even hints at, as if Satan is in competition with God as far as possibly Satan having a chance to win. But what we do know is we know that we are in a program that God is unveiling as time goes on. And we get to live in the part of this program where we get to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a blessing. That is something that, as Jesus said, many prophets and righteous sought to see and hear what you do. And they will when they wake from their sleep. They will. And they will be crowned and they will be blessed and they will be uh, given, uh, you know, the things due to them based upon their faith and the things that they've done. My second reason, because his judgment is sure, the day of the Lord is coming. All will come under the judgment of God. Second Corinthians, fifth chapter, verse nine says, "Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat." of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness. The background of what Jesus said here about the sure foundation is concerning God's judgment. Were you a false prophet or were you a true prophet? What did your fruits reveal? Did you enter in through the narrow gate or through the wide gate? Did you say, Lord, Lord, even though Jesus never knew you? Or when you say, Lord, Lord, does Jesus recognize you because you have done the things in which Jesus has prescribed you to do? You see, Jesus, and we can actually see a, a, a connection to James, the first chapter, verse 22 through 25, talks about 
Those who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I say I never knew them because they did not do the things that I told them to do. It's not those who say, but those who do. And there's a sure judgment coming. You know, concerning the foundation of a house, we always tell, or we, we can't always tell how firm that foundation is. We can go back and we can think about the storm that we had just recently. And fences everywhere, trees knocked down left and right. I mean, just it, I've talked to people that have lived here that are 75, 80 years old, said they lived here their whole life and said that's the worst storm they've ever seen as far as straight line wind. And it just gives us kind of a, a nice, clear, recent example or illustration that sometimes you can actually look at two houses, and many of us, you know, have, I've never been a part of construction per se, a little bit as, as a teenager, uh, but I could look at two houses, and most likely, because I'm not very experienced, I don't really know what I'm looking for, I'm not going to be able to tell, you know, the difference as far as a foundation or, or if a house is put together properly. I would not be able to identify those things. Did, was there corners cut on this house? Was there corners cut on this house? It's not until resistance comes that we find out how sure the foundation is. Now, part of that resistance, of course, the ultimate resistance is going to be the judgment of God. Where we know Luke, the 8th chapter, verse 17, says all things will be revealed for God is the God of light. My third, and I'm kind of going through this quickly. My third thing, reason that Jesus needs to be our foundation, that we need to build on the rock of Jesus, is because he has the authority. You know, I've had people ask me before, and they say, you know, why do you believe in Jesus? What's, what is it about Jesus? You know, why, why is he... Uh, you know, the one that we should all follow. And really, there's one thing I use. I think there's many things, but in my mind, this is the crux of, of all of Christianity. Everything hinges on this. Everything he said when he was a human being on this earth depends upon this one thing. And that was, he's the only person, the only being to defeat death. No one else has defeated death. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity. Back in April, I gave a seminar on the resurrection, the facts and things surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Historically, we can look at this and say something happened to the body of Jesus. Scholars almost unanimously agree with that, that Jesus is not in the tomb that he was placed in. The difference is, is people's worldview will tend to basically guide where their conclusion is. In my opinion, and many other scholars' opinion, that'd be evangelical scholars, the most plausible explanation for why Jesus, his body was, was not there anymore, was because he rose from the dead. You see, it's not just about a missing body. It's about individuals who were rooted in one of the most dedicated and strict forms of Judaism of the time, deciding that, wow, I was wrong, and going another direction. That's me talking about the Apostle Paul. That's a huge testimony. It's about this small movement and people saying, you know what? I'm willing to die for this because I've seen it happen. You know what? All these things that I used to think, I have to reevaluate them. Because this guy died, and he rose from the dead. I saw him again after he died, and I saw him go up into heaven. 
Everything hinges upon that resurrection. And because of that resurrection, even if Christianity has came and is much different than what people thought the Old Testament presented as the Messiah, what we have to do is, is we have to reevaluate our interpretation. Because I don't know about you, but it's not a sane choice to say, well, Jesus, I can't believe in him because he's not fulfilling things the way I thought they should be fulfilled. I look at it and say, whatever, he just rose from the dead and he went up into the sky. I'm going with him. So the resurrection of Jesus makes all of this the complete uh, our authority. It makes Jesus have the complete authority. But that last part in Matthew the 7th chapter says in verse 28 and 29, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You know, so many people back in Jesus' day and in our day, they rely on tradition. They rely on, you know, religious leaders. And I'm not talking about, you know, maybe you're doing a Bible study and uh, you want to consult some background material. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who essentially, they don't ever put any effort in themselves. They don't ever, you know, prove whether or not something's being said is actually accurate or goes according to the word of God, but rather they just basically go with the flow. They just, whatever said, they like this personality or they like this movement. And basically because they're married to the organization or to the religious denomination or to the particular sect, they're actually more inclined just to go with whatever it said versus proving it for themselves. You know, there was a Dutch humanist thinker that lived during the Renaissance period named Desiderius Erasmus. And he's actually been quoted as saying that the chief strength of the church lay in the hands of the ignorance of the people. Now what that quote essentially meant, writing in the Renaissance period, this was a time where this was before the Reformation, before people had their own personal Bible written in a language that they could understand. And what he's saying is, is that because no one can understand the Bible on their own, they don't have their own personal Bible, but they rather have to go to a priest and have the priest explain and interpret the Bible to them. Because of that, the church has complete control on what the people believe. Let's think about that. Think about that benefit that me and you have today of being able to learn and understand the scriptures on our own as far as having a personal private Bible. So we can see great examples of this in our life where people rely, unfortunately, on religious movements, on, on different religious sects or, 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 or organizations or denominations. Unfortunately, it's also, as we talked about in the introduction, even moved into the political sphere. We see many people look for a savior and all the chaos that's going on in our country to arise out of potential presidential candidates. If this candidate's elected, everything's going to be horrible. If this candidate's elected, everything's going to be great. I don't know what's what. All I know is, is that I know the candidate who will make sure everything's going to be great, and that's a sure foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the only person only thing that we can put our faith in. It has nothing to do whether or not you go vote or you don't go vote or, or, or whether you decide to, to get involved in that and, and argue particular issues. More than anything, whether we do that, whether we don't, it's all up to us. 
It's the beauty of living in this, you know, this country that I am very proud of. We have that right. But no matter what, know where our foundation is. Know where our foundation is first. Because whether it be government we rely on, security systems, security measures, people, substances, all of that, including our own life, can be taken away just like that. But we know that no matter what, there is one indestructible, indestructible, omnipotent, ever-existing being that we can put our trust in, and that is God the Father in Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, build on the rock. He is the foundation, Jesus Christ, that we build on. That's a sure foundation that's indestructible. His judgment is imminent, and may I add, even is sudden storms. And when I mean sudden storms, all of us face sudden storms in this life. And last but not least, build on the rock because he has the authority.